If we're able, to remain standing. And for this morning's reading, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 19 through 31 of Hebrews chapter 10. This is the word of our Lord, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us even as we consider this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As you astutely noticed, this is not Ephesians 6.17, which is the next uh, portion in the book of Ephesians. We're going to reserve that for next week, Lord willing, and and, uh, uh, we should have two sermons left in our series in Ephesians to just to tie it all together uh, nicely in 52 parts uh, for the book of Ephesians. Uh, this this sermon, uh, this the the desire to preach this sermon arose from a meeting that I have with uh, six to eight other like-minded pastors as, as far as the gospel goes here in Olympia. We meet once a month on the third Thursday of the month uh, for two hours to pray and to study together how we, not as one church, but as different churches can reach Olympia, Tumwater, Lacey, and to saturate this area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we can be a help to one another in doing that. And uh, we spend some time just talking about each other's lives, what ministry uh, challenges are, are, are in each other's lives. And, and um, one of the, the things that has, has become obvious, after this year, I'm one of the oldest guys in that group, you know, um, is, uh, which is one of the reasons why I like meeting with them, and not to feel younger, but to perhaps 
provide some wisdom that they may not have. The, the, most of their churches are very young as well, the, the average age in the churches. Um, but I was looking around the table this past Thursday, and they just looked old. No joke, just, they just looked exhausted and old in navigating this past year. And their testimony is how they are struggling to convince their people that they should be together in the house of the Lord. Uh, that was a, I felt very sad for them, but also felt very thankful for you and for our congregation. That hasn't really been a major struggle. And we have people who think differently from one another. We have people on the exact opposite of uh, the, the, the thinking on several issues, and yet we've been able to stay together uh, as a congregation. And to see these young men who now look like old men, and, and I'm not trying to exaggerate the, the way they're walking, their less, he- less hair in their heads, grayer heads. I don't know if it's just my psychological subjective thinking of them, but that's how... Uh, they look, struggling, figuring out what they did, trying to figure out what they did wrong, that the people of God don't love the church of God. That's a sad situation. And that kind of, my mind, I thought, it's time for, let's put Ephesians on the side just for a moment. And let's look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 and see, assure ourselves, reconvince, remind us of the importance of, of the gathering of the Church of Jesus Christ. I want us to see here that we can't arrive at the end without one another. That in a very real way, we need each other. God's people are instruments in God's hand in the preservation of His people. In other words, God uses His own people motivated by the gospel as a means to preserve His people to the end. To put it a third way, one of the instruments that God uses to cause Christians to live by faith to death is the ministry of other Christians in their lives. Every second we live, we are closer to dying. Have you ever thought of that? Every single second we live, we're closer to dying. And we need each other in all those seconds so that we can arrive at the end. We, the book of the Hebrews speaks of this cloud of witness that are around us, encouraging us to arrive at the end, to finish the race and to fall into Jesus' arms at the end of the race. And that cloud of witness is not just these Old Testament saints whose big names we read in Hebrews 11. The cloud of witness are us who are running alongside each other. It's the previous generation that we, we know that's gone before, cheering us to arrive at the end. And God instituted that. God made it so we need each other. So there's a, a sense in which we are responsible for each other's eternal destiny. Proper thinking in this area is of utmost importance in a time when Christians are not desiring together anymore. I don't know if you noticed, uh, if you paid attention, the last three weeks a new poll came out 
saying for the first time in the history of the United States, less than 50% of the American population is attending church. And statistics are telling us that once this is all said and done, only 30% of people who attended church before the pandemic will be attending church again in the United States. Now, if you dig through the statistics and the data, you see that the, you know, that needs to be interpreted. A lot of it is from mainline churches, which is kind of great that people are not attending them anymore. But even the evangelical world is going to be facing the music. And it is a purification process. The church, uh, I believe, will be more purified through this and will be uh, a weeding uh, in the process. But it is sad that the Church of Jesus Christ has not prepared itself to face things like this, things that seem to be so extraordinary in our lifetime. And yet, in history, the Church has faced this over and over and over again. I encourage you later tonight, today to read, uh, I think it's uh, hymn 98 or 94. Can somebody, oh, Emily, can you check? Now thank you, oh God. Go home and read it. And that was a poem written by a pastor when his whole town was devastated by the plague. And every other pastor fled town, 98. Every other pastor, pastor fled town, but he stayed behind. And he was doing 50 funerals a week, a day, sorry, a day, including his own children. But he realized, and this is not a people who didn't know how they caught these things. Maybe uh, germ theory wasn't around, but they knew that these plagues were caught from being around other people. And yet, this, these people refused to abandon the brethren because they understood that there's more to life than physicality. We are, on, we are in the only phase, only age in the church where physical well-being has become the ultimate, if not sole, determining factor as, to what the, as for what the church is going to do. Remember what the great reformer Luther said? The body they may do what? The body they may kill. But that's all that can happen. The worst thing that can happen to us is that we're going to see Jesus a little faster than perhaps we had planned. This passage shows us which, in which sense this is the case. This passage shows us in which sense is the case that we are in, in, in charge of each other's destiny. The gospel compels us into action. And one of those actions is thinking of ways to provoke our brothers and sisters in the hope of the gospel, in love and good works. And I wanted to break this passage in seven parts, and they're going to be small parts, so don't, don't be afraid of the seven-part outline. I want us to first see the gospel in verses 20, 19 to 21, uh, uh, the gospel that compels us to act. And then we're going to spend our time, the bulk of our time, in verses 24 through 31. And I want to see the task that the Holy Spirit gives us in response to the gospel. And the task is to think. And that task has a purpose. And the purpose for us to think is to think of ways to stir each other up. And the goal of that stirring is to help us to love and do good works. And the manner in which we accomplish that main task is by not forsaking and by exhorting. And the Spirit gives us an encouragement for the performing of that main task. And the encouragement is that the day is approaching. You are going to see Jesus. 
And for some of us, maybe 60 years, but for others, maybe tomorrow. And we're going to see Jesus. The day is approaching. And then I want us to finish by looking at the danger of failing this task. There's no more sacrifices for sin if we fail this task. Let's start with the gospel. That's what we need to start with everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses 19 through 21. And here the Spirit puts the gospel in terms of Jesus being the high priest and giving us access to God by His blood before the Father. Now there are at least two truths that in these verses tell us about the gospel. We have Bold access, we have confident access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. In chapter 9, the Spirit just starts, uh, just described to us how Jesus Christ, through His blood, came before the Father and said, This is for my people. I've died on the cross for my people. Father, you do not have to pour your wrath upon him, upon them anymore because you've poured upon me. And here's the proof. My blood shed on the cross of Calvary. And thank you, Father, Jesus says, for receiving that by bringing me back to life, which is the ultimate proof that Christ, that God the Father, accepted Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. If you're a believer, if you want to know if, you're, if your salvation is sure, look at the risen Christ. That's the proof that God the Father accepts you in the Beloved. And then this idea of the high priest was interceding for us. He's pleading for us. He opened the holy place. Remember how in the Gospel of Matthew says that the moment he died on the cross, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the presence of God in the temple, was torn from top to bottom, saying that you and I have clear and free access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's our high priest there. And notice there in verses 19 and 20 and 21, 19 and 20, we have this, these two words, having. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness. And then that word is again assumed in verse 21, which says, and having a high priest, that these two havings are stated in the present, which expresses continuity. Jesus' blood wasn't effective in the past. It continues to be effective on our behalf today. Jesus wasn't just a priest in the past. He continues to be our priest now, interceding for us now. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross gives us this confident, this bold access to God. In verse 19 again, The Spirit says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness, having confidence to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. His own flesh was rendered, was torn, so that we may have access to the Father. We have have gospel confidence through faith in what the blood of Christ represented and accomplished for us, we have access to the holiest place. That is, we have access to the very presence of God. And that's why Paul says we can call him Abba. That's a, in, in a term of endearment, perhaps similar to daddy. It, we, uh, even the Puritans, we think of the Puritans as austere people who are looking for somebody having fun somewhere so that they could stop it, which is not, couldn't be any further from the truth. But the Puritans would talk about prayer as crawling onto your daddy's lap. 
That's the picture that the Bible gives us of our relationship to God. And that's true because Jesus Christ is your high priest, is interceding for you. Through him, through his body, you can come and crawl into your daddy's lap and whisper your petitions to him. And he will listen. And you can do that confidently. But the only way to have the confidence that God has accepted us is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as verse 20 says. Jesus himself said in John 16, verse 4, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through me. And the confidence we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ must compel us into gospel action. Particularly in this passage, there are three actions in verses 22 through 25. It says that this faith in Jesus Christ, what Christ has done for you, the blood of Christ being upon you, compels you to come close to God because He's going to accept you. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with the pure water. We can come, we can come with, fewer, uh, with sure confidence. God has accepted us. So the first gospel action is an action toward God. The second one we find in verse 23, where we're told to hold on to what is true, because that is where our hope is. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The first action is approach God. The second action is a self-oriented action. Hold on to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And the third action is one towards the other. He says, think about ways in which you can irritate each other unto love and good works. Look at verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as in the manner of, our, of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And this is what we're going to spend the, last, the rest of our time, this gospel action, thinking about ways in which you can stir each other up unto love and good works because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People of God, the gospel compels us to consider others, to think about others. This word translated consider here in verse 24 also means to notice, to observe carefully, to look at, to contemplate, to pay attention. When we look at how it is used in the New Testament, we see that it gives the idea of careful, thought out, and thorough consideration. And that's what the gospel calls us to do for one another, to consider each other. For example, in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about uh, examining your heart and taking that big plank out of your eye before you go address somebody else's sin. And there Jesus says in Matthew 7, 3, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but do not consider that it's noticed? Think about the plank in your eyes. In, in Acts 27, Paul is in the midst of a shipwreck. Remember, there's on the way to Rome and the big storm in the Mediterranean. They don't follow his advice. Now everybody's going to die. But then they see land. And this is what Psalm 20, uh, Acts 27, 39 says. 
When it was day, they did not uh, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if, if possible. Do you think that they were the uh, the people on the ship ship was just a ah, hmm? I wonder where we can save our lives at. No, they were observing precisely the the place where it would be the safest for them to arrive. That's the kind of consideration that we're called to give here in, in Hebrews ten twenty four as we think of each other. Early on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Do you think that's what the Spirit wants us to do? To consider lightly, to consider thoughtlessly. To, no, to consider Jesus thoroughly and carefully. That's the kind of thinking that we're to do towards one another, to figure out ways in which you and I can encourage each other to love and good works. That's exactly what the purpose of this consideration, that's the purpose of our being around each other so that we can figure out ways in which we can stir each other up. Look again in verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The Holy Spirit uses here a word that usually has a negative connotation, this idea of stirring up. In most places, the word translated stir up means provoke or irritate. Here, though, it has a positive connotation. It's, it, though it still carries the idea of creating pent-up energy that allows one to act. Siblings, probably not our kids, because all our kids are holy and sanctified and they don't do that. But siblings often spend considerable time thinking of ways to irritate each other in order to provoke each other to do something that might get them in trouble. Now, you, you, may, you parents may never have experienced that with your kids, but you've heard about other people that uh, uh, do that. That's actually the picture that the Holy Spirit is painting to us for our thinking of each other. We are to demonstrate the same tenacity, the same hard work and joy and considering ways that we can be used by God in each other's lives to cause each other to love God and others more and to cause each other to serve God and each other more. That is really the goal of this task of considering one another. We are to figure out ways that we can help each other to love and to do good works. That's how verse 24 ends. Now, what is this love that we are to provoke each other into? What, what kind of love are we to stir up in each other's heart? Well, it is a self-giving love that finds its paradigm on the cross. It's a self-giving love that finds its ultimate pattern and example in the cross of Jesus Christ. As John says in 1 John 4, 10, in, thi- in, in this is love... Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This love is defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 as love that suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. 
The love that we're supposed to be stirring up in each other's heart is a love that, according to Jesus, results in obedience. As Jesus is about to be crucified, the very last night with his disciples in the upper room, he spends a lot of time teaching them, and the teaching is grounded, or it circles around this idea of love. And in John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's the type of love that we want to stir in each other's heart, a love that drives us to obedience. Though the passage here in, in Hebrews 10 is not explicit about the object of this love, Jesus' statement about the primacy of the love of God and love of neighbor has to guide us. Remember when the Jewish leaders are trying to catch Jesus and his word, and he asks Jesus, what's the most important thing in the Bible? And Jesus says, okay, let me give you Cliff's notes on the Bible. Uh, that means just summarize everything. I mean, just two short verses. That's the only two things the Bible teaches. Love God with everything that's in you, and love people around you. Other than that, you don't have to worry about anything else. Those are the two things. Everything about you must be about loving God. And as a result of that, you must love the people around you. And that's the kind of love that we are to think of ways to provoke each other unto. It's mind-boggling to me. It's super counterintuitive when, that when Paul was, put, uh, was given the same question by the Galatians, he summarizes love not as love for God, but love for neighbor. In my mind, if, if, uh, now if I were Paul and I was asked, what is the supreme kind of love? And you say, oh, it's love for God. But that's not what Paul says. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How, how can it be? Where is God in this summary? Well, this is the point. We love God by loving one another. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John says in John 4, 20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So what kind of love are we supposed to be thinking about ways to irritate each other, to provoke, to stir each other up into? The kind of love that loves God by loving the people around us, especially by loving the people of God. Not only are we to be thinking and implementing ways to provoke each other unto love for God and others, but also unto good works. This, this word good is also the word for beautiful in, in, in the scriptures. Beautiful works before God. That's the kind of works we're supposed to be encouraging each other unto. This good or beautiful works we are to, exhorted to stir up in each other is nothing more than obedience to God's royal law of liberty, as James calls it. Now, our confession of faith says that these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of true and lively faith. So the gospel compels us into action. And one of these gospel actions is considering how we can stir each other up unto love and service for God and others. And how do we do that? And then we come to point number five, if you're counting them. We do that by not forsaking and by 
exhorting. In verse 25, it says, well, let's start at verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as, in the, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The Holy Spirit gives us these two phrases that modify or explain how we are to consider each other. The first one is not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. The term forsaken here means to, to abandon, to desert. It's the very same term used about demons, demas, not demons, demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul says that for the love of the world, demas forsook Paul. And this forsaking, this assembling that's being forsaken is not any to get together of Christians. It is specifically the times when the people of God are gathered together to worship, to pray, to study God's word. This word translated assembling is used for religious gatherings of God's people, not limited only to the main worship of the church, but including that. And this is a fact. This is the truth here, people. You cannot stir up love and good works in another if you forsake times when we are assembled together. You cannot do what is being talked about here via Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever other social media you're trying to use. Now, some in the Hebrew church had already forsaken their corporate worship, as verse 25 says, as is the manner of some. Now, these meetings were potentially dangerous. Now, depending on the local magistrate's attitude toward applying the illicit religious laws, Christianity was illegal. So the magistrates could put them all in jail for a meeting. So some were afraid that if they came to church, that they would get in trouble with the law. It was potentially dangerous to their health because of religious and civil persecution. They could get a stone. They could get beaten for coming to church. They could even die. It was, in addition, it was a, there was a certain societal stigma that went along with being associated with Christians' gatherings when nobody's supposed to be gathering to worship Christ. That, that is what was going on here. Now, does that remind you of any other time? Do these three elements that may have led some people to forsake the assembly of themselves together sound familiar to you? We think, oh, the Bible is good for when it was written, but it doesn't understand our times. We live in different times. The threats are different. Do you think our God who has created the universe did not know this was going to happen? As a matter of fact, He appointed 2020. It did not happen by accident. And through it, sadly, from a human perspective, his church is being purified. Notice that it doesn't say, though, that these forsaken brothers had denied the faith. Yet, they did take a major step in that direction. It is very significant that the strongest warning against apostasy, against unbelief in the Bible and in the book of Hebrews follows this exhortation to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. 
The Holy Spirit has a purpose for the way that he has put the things together in the Bible. Now let me ask you, what are some ways that one can forsake the assembly of ourselves? Well, the most obvious one, and I like stating the obvious, is by not being at the place and time when the church is gathered. We forsake the assembly by not being in the gathering of the church. That's the obvious way. Now, you might, some people say, ah, why are you always stating the obvious? Like, why do you always say that wine in the communion is in the inner circles and the grape juice is in the outer circle? Because almost every week people ask us, after I have said that, which one is wine and which one is grape juice? So that's why we say the obvious. Now, this absence of the gathering of the church is not the occasional sickness that keeps one from being with the church, but the deliberate neglect to attend. It is having the attitude that attending the stated gatherings of the church is a matter of convenience. It, is also, it also includes the attitude that there are other more important things like work or entertainment that should take the place of gathering with God's people, especially on the Lord's day. The Spirit of God tells us that that is a step towards apostatizing from Christ himself. Parents, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But I've been in ministry now for over 25 years. And I say, I think this is completely true what I'm going to tell you. You don't love the church. Your children will not love Jesus. It's as plain as that. You do not love the gathering of the body of Christ. Your children will not love Christ himself. As plain as that. Now, there are other ways that we forsake the assembly of our sides that does not involve being physically absent. We can be physically present and still be forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. Like coming to church with a critical attitude. That is a forsaking of our assemblies together. Or coming unprepared, like sleeping through the service. Let me ask you this. How do you prepare yourself for the Lord's Day? How was your evening? How was your morning? Did you pray? Do you think the sermon often stinks? How much have you prayed for that? Not for it to stink, but for it to be good. <laughs> How do you prepare? That's coming unprepared is one way that we forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Unwillingness to give yourself to the work of worship. Standing there with the hymnal or the bulletin like this. And not participating. That is forsaking the assembling. You're not doing the work of worshiping God. Coming... Not believing that you're going to be blessed by being church. God says you're going to be blessed every time you come to church. And when you come not believing that, you're coming and you're forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Coming with a selfish attitude. Seeking only what you can get out of it and how you can be served. I want you to notice that the passage that we consider says, You think of others and let others think of you. Don't worry about you think of yourself. Others will do that. So on the negative side, we don't forsake being together 
in the church. That's, we're going to stir each other up in love and good works by, by not forsaking each other. On the positive side, we exhort. And this is a continued exhorting, perhaps better expressed as exhorting as a manner of life. The word exhorting has a begging uh, uh, feeling to it. In Romans 12, 1, it's translated as, I, I, I beseech you. In, in Philippians chapter, two, first, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is imploring Iodia and Syntyche to get along. Those are the same words as exhorting here. It has an earnestness to it. It has a heartfelt and heart deep and as opposed to a superficial concern with one another. Do you really care for the people around you? If you don't, you're sinning. Because Christ cares for them. Who are you? Who am I to not love somebody for whom Christ died? So what is it that we do to exhort what is it that we do to exhort one another? What is it that we are exhorting each other to do? It's Macdab in our passage, if you look at verses 19 through 25, is verse 23, and there it says that the exhortation for us to hold is the exhortation for us to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And our hope is that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when you look at the context of the whole letter of the Hebrews, you see that the confession that Jesus is Lord governs the entire book. So what are you supposed to exhort each other to do? What are we supposed to exhort each other to do? We are to exhort each other to hold fast to the only confession that brings hope. The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. The government's not Lord, and a lot of you say, Amen. But what you want in your heart is not Lord either. It's really easy to rail against the governor, government when it wants us to do things we don't want to do. But the desires of our heart are not Lord either. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, more often than not, we're going, we need to be saying that to, to the other people, to each other. Jesus is our Lord. But more often than not, this, this exhortation to hold on to the confession of our hope will come in the form of serving one another. You declare that Jesus is Lord over you by serving people around you, by giving of yourself, by being a servant. The word servant means slave. When Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ in the beginning of an epistle, the word servant there is a bondservant, it's a slave. And this is who we are. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. And we declare that Jesus is Lord by serving each other. And a great way to figure out how to serve one another is to look at the one another passages in the New Testament. We're going to do that now, but we're, we're running out of time, so we're going to skip. I was going to take us through uh, Romans starting at uh, chapter 12 through the end of the book and showing all the one another passages that govern our service to one another demonstrates that Jesus is Lord. And the Spirit gives us an encouragement for the performing of this task. He says that the day is approaching. Look at verse 20, the end of verse 25. It says, And so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is the day of reckoning. A day when the Lord Jesus will judge us. 
But from our perspective and from the perspective of the letter to the Hebrews, this is not a declaration of the imminence of Christ's return. It's not a declaration that Christ is about to return tomorrow. And if you're not ready, you're going to miss it. That's not what the day of judgment is. This is a reference to when we meet the Lord at death. In chapter 9, verse 27, he already says, It's given to man once to die, and then what? Judgment. Every second, as I said earlier, every second we live, we are closer to dying. And the exhorting of one another takes a deeper, more powerful meaning if we consider that it is a means that God appointed for us to be preserved until that day. Wouldn't you be a little more diligent if the eternal state of your brother, of your sister in Christ, depended on your exhorting them? Well, in a very real sense, it does. It depends on you. And there's a great danger. This is our last point. There's a great danger in failing in doing that. Look at verses 26 and 27. For if we sin, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that is, we receive the knowledge of Christ, and we decide to put that aside, which starts by forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, there's no longer, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we put Christ aside, there is no other sacrifice for sin. Verse 27, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. The danger of not holding fast to our confession that Jesus is Lord and therefore, the danger of not exhorting each other is that if we abandon Christ, there is nothing left except a fearful expectation of standing on the judgment day on our own. If this regarding Moses got you killed, as verses 28 through 30 say, Denying Christ and rejecting the grace of God dispensed by His Spirit is going to bring much worse consequence. So don't be caught without Jesus. Look at verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Apart from Christ, it's a fearful thing. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was born of a woman, lived a perfect life on behalf of his people, who could not live perfectly before God. He died on the cross as a punishment for the sins of his people, at which time God the Father poured on him the infinite weight of his wrath that was due every sinner. On the third day, he was risen from the dead, securing by his resurrection new life for all his people. All of this, so that those who believe that Jesus Christ did all these things for them may not perish, but have everlasting life and in fellowship and harmony with God. That is the gospel. Without a firm belief in what I just described, there's no hope of relationship with God as a loving God, and there's no hope of eternal life. 
all that is necessary for what Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection to be applied to you is faith in him and nothing else. And then this gospel compels us unto action. Christ living in us through us by the Spirit causes us to live gospel-filled lives. As we do that, we're going to think of ways in which we can stir up each other and propel them to love and good works by being with each other when the church is gathered and by exhorting one another to hold on to the confession of our hope. And that confession is, Jesus is Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we have a clear and powerful head. We thank you that our Lord has led us and has gone before us. And he's indeed, he's the captain of our faith. We pray that we would indeed think of ways to exhort and to stir each other up unto good works and love. We pray, Father, that we would follow the banner of Christ as he leads us. For asking Jesus' name, amen.